Welcome back to the AWB COVID-19 Employer Resources Webinar Series, presented by Kaiser Permanente. Today, AWB President Chris Johnson is joined by retired Vice Admiral and Head of Washington's COVID-19 Health System Response Management, Raquel Bono. Associate Scientific Investigator from Kaiser Permanente Washington Research Institute, Dr. Michael Jackson, PhD, and Jeff Cause, owner of Cause Tailored, a manufacturer from Muckleteo. The webinar will begin after this word from our sponsor. What we do now will forever change our tomorrow. So let's do the right thing today. Let's stay at home. Let's wash up. Let's always keep our distance, please, six feet apart at least. Let's look after ourselves as well as others. It will all be worth it. We can all do our part, so those on the front line can do their part. And when this is over, we will all continue to thrive. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to this week's webinar series. Uh, for those who celebrate Easter and Passover, I hope you had a great uh, and nice and enjoyable weekend. First of all, to get started, uh, I want to thank uh, Kaiser Permanente of Washington for sponsoring today's webinar. They've been an outstanding partner in helping us bring this important webinar series to you. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce this morning Todd Hesty, the Senior Director of Large Group Account Management and Strategic Accounts for Kaiser Permanente of Washington. Todd, welcome to our AWB webinar. Uh, we have a full house today. Let me turn it over to you to say a few words if I can. Thank you, Chris, and thank you to our partners at AWB and also to our distinguished guests. As we continue to respond to the ongoing public health crisis and the economic crisis caused by the coronavirus, policies and recommendations are changing daily. There's a high demand for current accurate information and there remain many un unanswered questions. Um, to provide you with all the resources, we host a weekly webinar every Monday at 10 a.m. Learn more and register for future webinars under the events, featured events tab at awb.org. Each webinar features uh, guest speakers who will provide an overview of their organizational initiatives, and we will then take audience questions for that particular speaker. Please be detailed when in your questions and specific in your questions, clearly stating to whom the question is directed. We're particularly excited about the speakers on today's webinar as they are for the, at the forefront of the Washington State's COVID-19 Strategic Task Force and working tirelessly to ensure our health system is taking every measure possible toward prevention and preparedness. With us virtually this morning, we have three guests. Retired Vice Admiral and former Defense Health Care Director Raquel Bono. Governor Inslee recently appointed Bono as Washington State Director for COVID-19 Health System Management Response, and she is currently a senior fellow with the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. As the former Chief Executive Officer and Director of the Defense Health Agency, Bono led a joint integrated support agency that enabled all branches of the U.S. military medical services to provide healthcare services to those engaged in combat. She is the first woman surgeon in the military to hold the rank of Vice Admiral. In her current role, Bono is, advisor, is advising the governor and his staff and state agencies on actions needed to address the capacity and strain across the healthcare system. We are delighted to welcome her to the program this morning. We're also delighted to welcome Dr. Michael Jackson, Associate Scientific Investigator from Kaiser Permanente Washington Research Institute. Dr. Jackson is an infectious disease epidemiologist, and his research focuses on how respiratory pathogens spread and how vaccina vaccination programs can protect individuals and the communities. 
He will soon be launching a study in the Kaiser Permanente population that will focus on tracking COVID-19 in the Puget Sound region of the Washington state. In addition, his work at the Research Institute, Dr. Jackson is, is an affiliate associate professor at the University of Washington School of Public Health. And finally, Mr. Jeff Koss, co-owner Koss-Tailored in Mugledo, who recently pivoted from manufacturing furniture to personal protective equipment, or PPE as it's referred to, to help protect healthcare workers and Washington state citizens from transmitting COVID-19. Throughout the webinar today, you can participate in the conversation, and here's how. In the lower right corner of the GoTo pop-up screen on your computer, there's a chat box. Type your question there, and we'll be able to see it. For each speaker, we will select the questions that will provide the most comprehensive information to our audience. If you have a question for a speaker or agency on the call, please indicate which agency your question is for, as this will help us to try to get as many questions as possible. A link to the full recording of today's webinar will be sent post-event to everyone that registered. They are also made available on demand for all awb.org under the events tab. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to our first speaker, retired Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, MD, Director, Washington State COVID-19 Health System Response Management. Hi, and good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for including me in this, uh, in this event. Um, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to meet with everybody and to, to have a chance to talk to everybody as well. So first off, what I'd like to do is thank everybody for the very warm welcome that I've, I've received here and, um, and being, a, being able to become a part of the Washington community so quickly. Um, I was, um, I've told other groups of people that um, while you've heard from my introduction that I was formerly in the Marine, I mean, the military, I did serve with the Marines actually, um, and so I had retired from the military, but it seems that I have already you know, failed in retirement because I'm, I'm back to work so quickly. But it's for a very worthy endeavor, and I'm, I'm very anxious to share some of that experience with you and to share how it came about. But I will say that uh, right away, my first impressions of coming to Washington State is uh, an enormous amount of, of admiration for the leadership that I've seen displayed across the state and within the state, all the way from the governor's office, uh, from his cabinet, and then down to through the, the uh, community at the healthcare system and with, with uh, certain business entities here in Washington State very clearly evident that the entire state and the, communi the community members, um, the citizens, the Washingtonians are very much engaged in doing this. And so for the, the business entities that are here in attendance, thank you for all that you've done to help implement the stay home and stay healthy. My, my initial goal when I came here was to make sure that we did everything that we could to protect the healthcare workers on the front line, to make sure that they had sufficient um, personal protective equipment and that they also had the right testing kits and the testing ability to make sure that we were taking care of the healthcare workers. My second major goal was then to make sure that we optimize the healthcare system, that we realize the fullest capacity of the healthcare system and the, and the hospital system here in Washington State. And then finally, my overarching goal was to make sure that we kept as many Washington, Washingtonians safe and prevented as many deaths as possible. As you can imagine, by taking a, a look at the healthcare system and realizing that we actually had all of the organic capability and expertise and talent already readily available here in the state, 
it was more a matter of how we could coordinate and collaborate all that. But it also became very clear to me that it wasn't just the healthcare system that we needed to pay attention to, because the healthcare system is actually a reflection of downstream consequences of an upstream event. And so part of what um, has in, been included now in my portfolio is helping to address, address where we see some of these upstream events. And here in the Washington State area, what we're paying particularly close attention to are the long-term care facilities, which I'm happy to talk about uh, a little bit later on if there's an interest in that. But um, being able to participate here in, in Washington State and to be amongst people who are very committed and engaged is really an honor and a privilege for me. Uh, I look forward to the additional conversation and your questions, and I'm sure that we can have a, a very robust conversation. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Admiral Bono. We'll be back to you with some questions. Next up uh, is Michael Jackson. And I, I meant to say this at the beginning of, of our webinar today. Uh, when we put out the information about this webinar series, I led with that we have Bono and Michael Jackson kicking off the AWB webinar on Monday morning. And I got a lot of great comments about getting your autographs and selfies with you. But uh, we have two, while those are two great singers, we have the two most forefront people leading the response to this important crisis with us this morning. And so, uh, Michael, that tee up, Dr. Jackson. Let me turn it over to you. There you go. Uh, yeah, we'll get the slides up and running. So uh, thank you and good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here virtually with all of you. Uh, We've got just a couple of minutes here, and I want to talk about three things. I want to talk briefly about how we as epidemiologists try to forecast what's going to happen with an epidemic like this COVID-19 epidemic here in Washington. I want to talk briefly about where we are right now in Washington State with our epidemic and talk about the information that we're looking to gather so we can try to predict better what's going to happen in the future. So we can go to the next slide, please. <clears throat> so when we talk about forecasting epidemics, broadly speaking, there's two approaches we can use. One is statistical and one is mechanistic. So statistical basically just means finding patterns in data. And these kinds of approaches are going to compare what's happening in Washington with deaths and hospitalizations to what's happened in other countries or regions that epidemics might be a little bit ahead of ours. So places like Hubei province in China, uh, Lombardy in Italy, Madrid in Spain. A mechanistic forecast is where we actually try to simulate how the virus is spreading through the human population and make forecasts like that. Uh, next, please. So you're probably familiar with these concepts from weather forecasting. So this here is a farmer's almanac, and that's a very simplistic kind of uh, statistical approach to forecasting. You just look in the past about what the weather tends to be on a particular day in a particular part of the country, and then line up where we are now with, with what that forecast is. Uh, next, please. Uh, mechanistic weather forecast, on the other hand, would be something like building a computer model where you put in information about uh, temperature and precipitation and wind speeds and then you run that model into the future and try to see what's going to happen. And so we can take these two kinds of approaches to epidemics as well. Next. So one of the forecasts that's been in the news a lot recently is one that's been put together by the University of Washington at their Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. And this is a screenshot from their website, their forecast for Washington State as of Saturday. And so their forecasts were predicting that, assuming that all our control measures stay the same as they have been, that the peak in hospitalizations was on April 6th and things will be declining from there. Now the IHB forecast is a statistical forecast. What they're doing is comparing deaths and hospitalizations in Washington state to other parts of the world. Uh, so we can go to the next slide, please, just to illustrate how that happens. Uh, this is a, an oversimplification, but it's the basic idea. So this, this graph shows in red, 
deaths per 100,000 population reported due to coronavirus in Hubei province in China, and in blue, the deaths per 100,000 in Washington state. Next. And so what this method is doing is it's basically trying to take the Washington state deaths and line them up with what happened in Hubei as closely as possible. And then next, please. And then we look at what happened in Hubei in the future relative to how those line up. Next. And then we can project forward uh, what we think is going to happen in Washington state based on this. Now, the real methods are a little more complicated because they're accounting for the timing of different control measures in different places, and they're including other regions of the world as well. But that's the basic idea. And so these statistical forecasts can change over time as we get more surveillance data, both for Washington state and for comparison regions of the world to have a better idea of what's happened elsewhere and what's happened here and try to line those curves up a little bit better. Next, please. The other approach to forecasting is to use a mechanistic model. And in this case, we're trying to model how the virus spreads to the human population. And so you see at the top, we can divide the human population up into different buckets of people. So we have on the top left, those are susceptible, meaning they've never been infected yet. People who are exposed have been infected, but they're not contagious uh, to other people. And then they become infectious and can spread the virus around. And then finally they recover and they're no longer infectious. And then what we can use is a series of equations that models how quickly people move between these different buckets. Next, please. And these funny Greek letters that I've highlighted here in the equation are different characteristics of the virus or of the human population, how fast we make contacts with each other. Uh, for example, the orange boxes relate to how long people stay in the exposed category between when they got infected and when they become contagious to other people. And so once we can estimate these values for the virus and for the human population, we can plug those into these equations and then run those into the future and predict what's going to happen. So if you go to the next slide, please. One of the other models that I think has been in the news quite a bit recently is put together by this group called COVID Act Now. And this is their forecasts for Washington State as of Saturday. And so their model is a mechanistic model using those equations that I just showed. And they predict that the peak of hospitalizations is going to happen somewhere around May 27th uh, under current control measures and then decline after that. The advantage of a mechanistic forecast is that you can make different assumptions about what's going to happen by changing the values you put into the equation. And so they have a separate set of forecasts assuming that control measures get relaxed, and that's in the red there. So if we relax control measures a certain amount, uh, it assumes that they run that forward and project we'd have many more hospitalizations and peak kind of early in June. These mechanistic forecasts can change over time as we get better estimates for the different values we put into the model. So as we do more studies and learn more about how long people tend to be uh, exposed before they become symptomatic, for example, uh, once we estimate that better, we can rerun the forecasts and hopefully get something more accurate. Uh, next slide, please. So now I wanna talk briefly about where we are in the COVID-19 epidemic here in Washington state. This slide shows the daily number of deaths uh, due to COVID here. And you can see there's a lot of noise there that tend to vary quite a bit from day to day. But the important part is looking from uh, March 15th on to the present. And there's a, a straight line there that shows the average across that time period, and the sort of trend. And the good thing is that that trend is a straight line. So we call this linear growth. And we don't see an exponential curve where that line is getting steeper and steeper as time goes on. So this is really good news. It means that the control measures we have right now here in Washington have been working and we've been slowing the epidemic down. This kind of linear growth is something that our healthcare system can handle. And so we don't see people dying unnecessarily because they couldn't get care if they got COVID disease. And so the big questions right now are, how can we try to hold on to these benefits of having slowed the epidemic down while still reopening businesses as much as possible? 
And from the, the science and public health side, there's two pieces of information that we're really looking for to try to get a handle on this. Uh, next slide, please. So the first question we're trying to answer is, is this new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, seasonal? A lot of respiratory viruses spread more easily in the winter than in the summer. And we saw this kind of dramatically in the last pandemic that we had, the swine flu pandemic of 2009. So that was first detected in late April of 2009. And this is a number of, of lab-confirmed cases uh, in the United States over part of 2009. We see that cases went up uh, over the course of, of May and into June, and then it kind of dropped off for a while during the summer and then came back with a bigger second wave peaking in October. So what we're doing as in public health and in epidemiology is we're watching what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere right now, the US and Canada and Europe, and comparing that to what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, South, South Africa, Argentina. And if we see our cases start to fall while their cases are going up, uh, that'll be an early clue that this may be seasonal as well. And so we can be expecting a second wave uh, in the fall uh, whereas we don't see that kind of trend, maybe it's, it's not going to be as seasonal. Next slide, please. The second big question that we've got to answer is how many asymptomatic infections are there? So how many people get infected but never show symptoms or, or get sick from it? And uh, there's some preliminary estimates of that from some small settings, but they range quite wildly. This makes a big difference about what the epidemic is going to look like. So here are just two graphs. These are mock data, not real epidemics, but showing uh, epidemics of the same size, but on the left, one where half of the population that gets infected shows no symptoms, so they're in the green, and then people symptomatic that might go see a doctor are in the yellow, and those are hospitalized or red. On the right side, it's the same epidemic, but where only 10% of people are infected asymptomatically. And so this kind of matters, trying to figure out where we are in the course of the epidemic, how bad it might get. Uh, so if you go to the next, next slide, please. So just in these mock data, let's imagine that we're at a point where 2,500 people are in the hospital right now. Uh, on the left side, if 50% if of folks are asymptomatic, uh, that means that we're about day 75 of the epidemic and we're about halfway to the peak of hospitalizations. That is gonna get, uh, you know, in this made up scenario, we get, it would get twice as bad as it is now. Uh, next, please. Uh, on the right side though, let's say only 10% of people are asymptomatic. If we're at that same level of 2,500 hospitalizations, uh, we're only on about day 70 of the epidemic, and the peak could be three or four times as severe as it is now. And so knowing how many people are asymptomatic is really important to figuring out what the course is going to be, especially from the hospital side. What we need to do for that is to have uh, reliable blood tests that we can give to see who has antibodies in their blood to this new virus, who's been infected in the past. And there are some companies that are starting to roll those out now. So once we get those, we'll start doing large-scale studies where we take blood from a lot of people uh, sort of different ages and, and businesses and groups and things like that, and try to figure out how common it is for people who have been infected but without symptoms. And that'll tell us uh, which of these two curves is more likely for, for coronavirus. Uh, next slide. And finally, I just want to close with uh, information about a vaccine trial for COVID-19 that's happening at Kaiser Permanente Washington. This is a trial that's sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, and it's being led by my colleague, Dr. Lisa Jackson, who has the same last name but has no relation. The vaccine is made by a company called Moderna Therapeutics, and the vaccine doesn't include any parts of the virus, so you can't get COVID disease from the vaccine. Uh, the initial trial is focused on adults age 18 to 55. They're hoping to add uh, adults 60, 56 and older uh, to the trial as well. This is what's called a phase one trial, where they're studying uh, whether the vaccine is safe, if there's any obvious side effects, and whether people that get vaccinated uh, develop an immune response to the, vi to the virus itself. Uh, if this process works, then the next steps will be to test whether the vaccine is actually effective at protecting people from COVID-19 disease. 
And the, the trial in this process is projected to take about 14 months, uh, which seems like a really long time. We're in the midst of a health crisis right now. But it's really important both to make sure that the vaccine actually works before you try to get it out there, and also to make sure that it's safe. We're talking about something that you might give to millions of healthy people. And so we really want to make sure that the vaccine doesn't have important side effects before we do that. Uh, next slide. So that's all I had for prepared remarks. So thank you for your attention. And I'm looking forward both to uh, Jeff Cass's uh, comments and to the Q&A session afterwards. Dr. Jackson, thank you. That, that was some exceptional data that you presented. Uh, a reminder to ask questions. You can do that by going to the right-hand corner of the GoToMeeting uh, and putting in questions. I should alert uh, Admiral Bono and Dr. Jackson. We have a long list of questions to get through today. So uh, if we can, uh, you started to tee this up, Dr. Jackson. We've done something new this week. We've got a survey question that's going to come on your screen here momentarily. Uh, so before we go to Jeff Cass, the, the question that's coming on your screen is to ask those that are participating, how many units of PPE will you need over the next 90 days for your company and your employees? And so you should be seeing a survey question come up on your screen. If you could click uh, your response, we'll be sharing those results with you momentarily. So again, how many units of PPE do you, does your company expect to need over the next 90 days? And in advance, just thank you for participating in this poll. It's another new wrinkle that we've added to the webinar to have you a chance to directly impact the conversation and dialogue that's happening. And we're trying to get a sense of how much PPE you will need over the next 90 days, which is a great setup as we think about getting to Jeff Cass here in just a few seconds. All right, results are starting to trickle in. Let me share some of them with you. Uh, under well, they're on your screen right now. This is the results from how many PPE, how many units of PPE will your company need over the next 90 day? 42%, uh, zero to 50 units. 14%, 51 units to 100. 18%, 100 to 500. 8%, 500 to 1,000. And 18% needing over 1,000 units of PPE. So with that, let me set this up for Jeff Cast. Jeff, you're someone that answered the call to action that we and a bunch of others put out two weeks ago about asking manufacturers uh, to see if they have the ability to pivot what they're producing and make much needed PPE. Cast Taylor did exactly that. Uh, your company's done a, a 180 to help produce the much needed PPE. And I would just like to turn this over to you to spend a few minutes talking about what were you doing before? What are you doing now? And kind of the why are you doing it to help help get that needed PPE out to the front line of first responders, Washington healthcare workers, and employers in general. So Jeff, let me uh, pass it over to you. Yeah, great, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so I'm a boy, when you give me three questions, I forgot the first two already, but I think it was what were we doing before, what are we doing now, and then the why. And uh, always the why is the most important, so I hopefully remember that. Uh, so what are we doing before? We're a small manufacturing concern in Mukilteo making uh, airplane parts and furniture and doing some Kaizen training for the world. And so everything kind of normal uh, leading up to this. Um, the, the first kind of phase of the crisis for us is just observing what was going on in the world and uh, putting in place uh, a plan to protect our, our colleagues and, and figure out what the heck we'd be doing with our lives. Uh, what we're kind of doing now is uh, we, we uh, heard that uh, Providence had a, a 100 million mass challenge. I texted a, a business friend that we knew because of the, the training we do. 
And that I think was the 18th. And on the 19th, we were doing design with them and producing in Holland that same day. So, so what we're doing now is we are making masks and shields, doing some pattern work with gowns, uh, collaborating with uh, some competitors. I've hired former uh, customers, uh, Nordstrom particularly, to make stuff for us. And uh, we're basically taking everything that used to be 200 people making furniture and airplane parts, and uh, we're all making different products right now. Uh, we've always said that it's not so much the what we make, it's the who we make for. So this gets to the why. Uh, so high level why, it's a love your neighbor deal. So our, our business is actually all about growing people for a living. We just happen to make furniture, airplane parts. And so when you look at the what that's flowing through our business, uh, we have for many years served the healthcare community through tours and um, actually on-site consulting, usually in other countries. Um, I'm a little bit smarter the further away I get from home. So uh, uh, so anyhow, we've been just doing this uh, kind of forever. And so now we get to do it with our hands. And uh, it's just a tremendous honor to be able to uh, yeah, put things in the hands of people we care about on the front lines. Um, and uh, you know, frankly, if you're a business person right now, you're wondering how your business is going to survive. So I know how we survived for three weeks, and uh, it'll be interesting to figure out how the next three weeks go. So with that, I'll put it back to you guys. Hundreds of, manu hundreds of manufacturers heard the governor's call to action and heard uh, the Department of Commerce and Admiral Bono's call uh, for much needed PPE. Admiral Bono, let's maybe go to you if we can, and can you kind of give us a sense of what does PPE look like in this state today? There's a lot of things that go into PPE, so maybe for our listeners who are not familiar with, with what's all in the bucket of PPE, if you could just spend a few minutes kind of up going through that, such as ventilators, masks, gowns, et cetera, and kind of give us a sense of where are we at today and maybe a look ahead to what might be needed over the next 60 to 90 days. Thank you. Uh, I think it's a really good question and it's, it's really a mainstay of not only what we're doing to help um, address the, the COVID positive rate and the number of infections that are happening, but I think it's also an important aspect an important element for what we need to do in terms of getting ready for recovery. So when we talk about PPE, we're talking about personal protective equipment. And there's a whole range of personal protective equipment, but the ones you've probably most commonly heard are the masks, whether they're N935, uh, N95 masks, which are certain respirators that, that allow a very high level of, of screening and filtering uh, so that the viruses can't be inhaled in somebody who's wearing the mask uh, and they're taking care of patients who have uh, COVID positive um, positivity. Then there are the surgical masks and, and that's also considered part of the, the PPE as well as uh, gowns, surgical gowns typically, and then glo uh, gloves as well as uh, boot covers or shoe covers. All of that is designed um, so uh, part of what, we, uh, what we've included in this personal protective equipment, the PPE, is being, able, is being uh, uh, able to make sure that whoever is coming in contact with somebody who is COVID positive or potentially COVID positive, that it decreases the chance of them being able to be exposed to the virus and then, and then, being able, then getting infected by that virus. So what we've done at the state level is that right off the bat, we tried to get a sense of what types of PPE stores there were within the state of Washington, whether that was in hospitals or clinics and ambulatory surgery centers, uh, even in some of the nursing homes and long-term care facilities. 
we put in a request to the strategic national stockpile to make sure that we could get as much PPE from, from that source, which is a, a stockpile that's available to the entire country. We also went and looking at different types of supply chains, put in, uh, actually procured or bought uh, several, uh, as much PPE as we could ac acquire. And then we also received donations from companies or anonymous donors who had contributed, who donated PPE to the state of Washington. At the same time, Governor Inslee sent out uh, a directive, and, uh, a leader's intent to all of us in his cabinet that what he expected from us was to be able to aggressively procure as much PPE as we could and to be willing to take some financial risk in making that happen. So he was really encouraging us to lean forward and find those areas where we could find as much PPE and bring that here into the state. So now we've, we've had a, a fairly uh, good response, a very robust response to receiving that. And it's difficult to quantitate it because um, you know, you talk about gloves in terms of pairs of gloves, you talk about the respirators as single respirators, so it's, you know, so there are different types of units and different types of PPE that we actually count. And so something will sound like a lot at two and a half million, but if you recognize that it might be two and a half million surgical gowns, but that the appropriate use of PPE is that you would wear it for one infected patient, but you would take off that gown and put on another gown before you talk, before you start taking care of another patient. You can understand how the burn rate for certain types of PPE would run at a fairly high level. Where we are right now is being able to show where we're distributing the PPE and how we're prioritizing that among the people that need it the most. And primarily we're focusing on the frontline healthcare workers, but we're also trying to target those healthcare, healthcare workers that are having more exposure to the coronavirus in certain settings, uh, like in certain hospitals and in long-term care facilities. So that's kind of, you know, PPE in a, in a very broad level. There's, there's a supply chain, there's receiving it, and then there's distributing it. And so we're in a good position to demonstrate and show where, we're, where we are receiving it from and how much we are receiving. What we're working on now is, is demonstrating how we're distributing that among the, the different entities. Thank you, Admiral Bono. Great, uh, great response. To that. I'm going to stick with PPE. I'm sorting through the questions that are coming in. Jeff Cass, let's go to you for a second. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the question is, how long do you see yourself producing PPE for, and what type of volume are you producing, and do you see that ramping up or down? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, as fast as we got in, so we went from zero to crazy, um, we expect to be ditched on a Tuesday. So um, so good news for the world would be, hey, we found something that means that the docs and nurses don't need these. Um, so, you know, we really don't have a way of predicting that at all. Uh, what we just did, the ramp is so big that we're uh, going just as fast as we can. What that means is that we're uh, continue to expand our relationship with Nordstrom. I think they publicly committed to producing uh, at least a million masks. Uh, we're hiring uh, competitors. So what's flowing through my four walls isn't as interesting as uh, what's flowing through the overall big picture. And then uh, the fact that we shared this information globally, um, there are places all over the world using the design information that we provided. Uh, so I'll never know how many we actually help produce, which I don't care to know. It's a, just a curious thing. Um, as we plan our business, what we're really trying to do is every day um, be willing to accept that data uh, actually is coming into the system and that data is providing us with a, a three-week kind of rolling average 
so that we can uh, try to plan. Uh, so we have, uh, um, we, we didn't ever think that we had a crystal ball and, and today everybody now knows that we don't have one. Uh, so we don't have an ability to really project that. Um, inside our four walls, I think we're producing uh, close to 100,000 masks a day, or not a, a per week, but I think our supply chain is closer to half a million. Frankly, I've been sewing all week, so I haven't been paying attention to what's actually going out the door. Does that answer your question? Maybe Jeff, could you maybe follow up on that a little bit and just talk about, there's a whole vertically integrated supplier community in here that helps all of this come together to get produced. Can you just talk a little bit about how complex that is, how there are many different suppliers engaged in providing parts and pieces that go into making the completed product? Yeah, so it's actually uh, pretty simple. The, the weird thing is we turn customers into suppliers, uh, that we turn competitors into suppliers and partners, that we turn relationships with people we care about at an executive level in healthcare systems to design engineers. And uh, so we start looking at what was needed. Everybody had to actually say, what is the part that we own in the system? And um, we had to all jump out of our, our traditional roles. Uh, from the mass production, uh, I think very quickly, uh, Providence recognized that they had a, a raw material source that wasn't going to be needed from the elective surgery perspective. And I, I can't say that that was their idea. I just know that it wasn't mine. But uh, so they very quickly jumped on getting materials uh, out of their system and into ours. Um, so that wasn't as complicated. The shield production, um, so we were probably uh, a week ahead of the public declarations of you know PPEs being needed. So we had about three or four days of getting materials before the big kids came in and started stealing stuff. So there's a, a, a big company that uh, makes products like these that have a number and a letter in their company name. And uh, their orders took precedence from ours uh, once they started asking for elastic and things. So the supply chain on Shields has been a, a quite a bit more complicated just because the materials that we thought were available were kind of, I don't say stolen, but taken by bigger companies really quickly. So that has been a big challenge, yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, let's maybe go to Dr. Jackson and Admiral Bono. A number of questions are coming up. Let me just set the stage around. Testing, vaccines, and antibodies. So let's maybe start with the testing question. Can you give us a sense of uh, what does the data tell us about the number of people who've been tested in Washington and uh, what indication is that for how where the virus is and where we might be going? Admiral Bono, you want to tackle that one first? Sure, thank you. Um, that, I think that's a really critical question. And, and from the very beginning, uh, the, the entire country and the state of Washington has not been exempt from this. It's been a real challenge to really get to a system or a level where we feel like we're doing very comprehensive testing and surveillance. And it, it's extremely challenging because that's, uh, having that kind of situational awareness about who's positive and who's not or who is at risk for, for turning positive really drives the planning that we need to have in terms of the PPE distribution as well as what kind of surge capacity and what kind of ability do we need to make sure that we have in our hospitals, whether it's for hospital beds, ICU beds, or ventilators. And so having that, that ability to have a, a really good understanding of the prevalence or what you know, the denominator of, of patients who are at, in, in, at a certain point in time are considered positive is, is an important element that we're still trying to, I believe, 
um, be more responsive to, but we've been challenged because of the availability of testing kits. And, and, and if anybody has been following the conversation about testing, there are actually three kits that are, that are important to the capability of testing. You actually have the specimen collection kit, and that's where you've heard a lot of the conversation about having the right kind of swab. And then there's actually the extraction kit, which is where you've probably heard people talk about having enough reagents to be able to extract the nucleic acid. And then it's actually the testing kit, which is usually the PCR kit or the, the platform on which the assay is then read. The two areas of these kits, or the two, the two out of the three kits that we've been using are the ones that have been very challenged by the supply chain, and that's, those are swabs and, and reagents. So, uh, you know, what we're, what we're looking at then is how do we determine how best to do some of the planning? And I thought that the conversation on the different types of modeling is, is, was really uh, very helpful because uh, a part of what we've been experiencing on our end in terms of trying to project how best to, um, to position ourselves as a healthcare system has been to look at the different modeling systems. Um, but we recognize that moving forward, as we want to start looking at, well, what does recovery begin to start looking like? It still is predicated on our, our ability to do very broad testing and surveillance. And then the other part of that, which is very important, is the ability to trace the contacts of people who have been exposed to that. And, and I hope at some point we get a chance to talk a little bit about uh, the opportunities that I, I would like to put out there for people's consideration in terms of public-private partnering to contribute to our movement in our current state, because I think we still need to keep up our non-pharmaceutical interventions. We need to keep up the physical distancing and, and all of those elements right now, uh, because we're just not at a point where we can let up at this point. But I think that part of the ability to move forward into recovery is how well can we create public-private partnerships that expand our collective ability to do testing and surveillance so that we can identify and cohort certain patients or people into either isolation or quarantine or allow them to, um, to continue or be a part of, of some type of recovery effort as we start looking at what that might look like. Uh, so I think that testing is, is a real pivotal part and it, we remain challenged with that. And, and as, we're, as we're looking at how do we need to distribute PPE, we're taking the same lens in terms of how we want to prioritize our testing at this point, recognizing that we have to do focused and targeted testing as well as surveillance. Just to add on to that, so in Washington State, there's been about 88,000 tests done so far, and they're running about 9% uh, of those have been positive. And just to put that in perspective, when you get to the peak of influenza season, typically somewhere around 40% of tests are positive for influenza. So uh, I think we're, we're still a ways from what the peak of this uh, could be if it were allowed to just run its course. Dr. Jackson, let's uh, stay with you for a minute and talk about modeling. And the question is, uh, disease model profiles indicate a downturn, but then a second wave that is maybe more robust and will drive an uptick. I think one of the charts maybe showed uh, a second kind of wave scenario, maybe around SARS that it was that you showed. Can you speak to a second wave issue and if and when that might come or under what circumstances that might come? Sure. There are two things that would play into that. So one is about the virus itself. The question is whether it's going to be seasonal and sort of die off, not entirely, but, but sort of slow down naturally over the summer and want to come back more in the fall. 
And then the second question is what happens with our control measures? So uh, from, from all the information that we have, uh, we, we're not at the point where enough people have been infected that the, the virus, the epidemic will kind of spiral down on its own. And so we, you know, if we just let go of all the control measures right now, we would expect a big, uh, a much bigger wave of the virus to come through. And so I think depending on different models, what assumptions they make about how strict our control measures are in the future, uh, sort of whether or not we kind of maintain the course that we're on of, of slow and steady growth at a manageable level versus uh, much more uh, explosive growth that could, could make a bigger second wave. But those, those are the two big questions of, of what do we do in terms of uh, continued social distancing and, and hand washing and, and face masks and so forth out in public, and also uh, what's, what's the nature of the virus. Dr. Jackson, maybe staying with you for a minute, going to Admiral Bono, can you speak a little bit to where vaccines are at and when should Washingtonians expect to see vaccines? I think there's some trials underway or nearly underway. Can you just speak a little bit about the horizon of, of, of a vaccine? Yeah, so unfortunately, the, the typical horizon for a, a vaccine against an entirely new virus like this is, is probably at least 18 months uh, from when we first discover it. So the, the trials that are going on right now will be uh, sort of 12, maybe 12 months long. And again, really trying to make sure that the vaccine is safe. Uh, we don't want, so we, uh, those of you that uh, maybe you don't have to remember back in 1976, there was a, uh, the start of an outbreak of swine flu in a military base. And uh, in response to that, there was a vaccine that was ramped up and, and widely distributed. And unfortunately, the vaccine uh, was able to uh, cause Guillain-Barre syndrome in, a, in an appreciable percent of those that were vaccinated and ended up with the vaccine causing more illness than the virus actually did. And so we really don't want to have that kind of situation. Um, maybe back to PP&E for a minute. And there's a number of questions coming into this. Maybe I'll start with Dr. Bono. And if, uh, Jeff, if you've got anything to add to this. Uh, there's a manufacturer in Seattle that says, hey, I have, three, I have a three-axis CNC machine. I would love to be part of producing uh, needed parts and pieces going forward. So if a company or someone that's on this call is interested in answering that, that call to action to help produce needed PP&E, where should they go? Who should they contact? Maybe we'll start with Admiral Bono if we can. Yeah, thank you, and, and thanks very much for that offer. We will take all, all uh, offers for assistance, and the best way to do that and to help us with that effort is to go to our webpage, departmentofhealth.wa.gov, uh, and look there on that site. We have not only some information about what we're collecting in our epidemiologic base, uh, uh, studies and our data, but you can also see how you can help and where you can start contributing either PPE or, or other other types of donations that you might want to be able to participate in. So go to the website and you'll find lots of information there in terms of what uh, what you can do to help out. And thanks for, for thinking about that. Yeah, I, I agree with that totally. The uh, I think the, 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 the key learning for us is that the relationships are what have driven uh, everything for us. So uh, just encourage uh, that that company, others like it. There's probably some relationship, somebody they know already that is already in the supply chain. So it's quite hard to get from the 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 website uh, to I can actually make stuff because you might need to collaborate with other people. So I would say uh, maybe uh, do a little brainstorm with your team to figure out who do you know that's already doing something and see if you can partner with them. And certainly. Um, if you have capabilities that might be useful on our side, email me directly and, and uh, uh, we can talk about that as well. I'd also put a plug out there for Tommy Gantz from our team. She's been uh, facilitating between us and Commerce and 
Admiral Bono's team connecting manufacturers who can either make parts of parts of the supply chain or, or the entire product. So again, Tommy Gantz at uh, AWB is a great resource for you as well. This question I think goes to probably Admiral Bono to begin with and maybe uh, Dr. Jackson next. Uh, a number of questions here about, it seems like Washington is bending the curve. Are we bending the curve? So that is a really good question. Uh, we see some we see some progress. We do seem to see that there is an impact to the the community measures that we that the governor has taken. That uh, physical distancing is working. The attention to hand washing and to avoiding uh, you know once people identify that they're not well, going into isolation and uh, quarantine, and then also being able to decrease the amount of traffic on the roads and the, the incidents of people moving back and forth. And so we feel that there, there, there is an impact, but you've heard us talk already here in this conversation about what kind of resurgence or what kind of second peak. And so I, we're, we can't um, at this point look at, uh, at being very complacent or feel like we've got this beat. And so if we look to see what's happening around the state, we're starting to see uh, additional places where we're seeing slight uh, increase in activity. And not surprisingly, they are in places where we see congregate populations like long-term care facilities, skilled nursing homes, adult family communities, or adult family homes. And so we recognize that based on how this, the transmissibility of this virus, that it moves very quickly especially with a very large coronavirus-naive community. It has a tendency to transmit very rapidly, and its transmission rate is, is still remains very aggressive. So I think it's too soon uh, to say that, uh, we are, that we've actually we have started bending the curve. I think we can definitely say that we have started impacting the curve. But in order to make sure that we've definitely bent it or flattened it, we need to see sustained you know, sustained um, numbers that show that we're not increasing either linearly or exponentially, and we just don't have enough data to show that that's what's actually happening at this point. So um, that was part of the conversation that uh, the governor had, not only with his counterparts at the other state levels, but certainly with his cabinet, and what helped inform his decision to extend the stay home, stay healthy, because we still have not demonstrated this sustained effort or sustained um, change in the number of cases and the deaths that we'd like to see at this point. Dr. Jackson, do you want to add anything to that from that perspective? Uh, I don't think I have anything to add to that, thanks. Sure. Uh, a lot of questions in here regarding what does the process look like to returning to work? And maybe uh, there's two sets of themes coming in here. When might we see a returning to work, and what, what are gonna be some of the PP&E and safety things that employers will need to think about as we re think about returning to work? I, I can take the second part a little bit, and then I think Admiral Bono is best positioned for the first part of that. So I think one thing that we're just all gonna to need to keep in mind is this virus is going to be around for a while. That's, uh, you know, if, if we flatten the curve, uh, it sort of just means that we're keeping transmission to a manageable level. And so we need to be thinking about, you know, how can we structure our our businesses, our interactions, uh, how can we be protecting our employees from a virus that's still going to be circulating in the community? And so I think, uh, you know, things like uh, 
increasing the social acceptability of walking around with face masks and uh, even even when stay-at-home orders are lifted and and having those kinds of uh, considerations um, being thoughtful about other ways that that, that uh, customer flows can be uh, changed or modified so that people aren't uh, in as much contact with each other unnecessarily so uh, there, there will be kind of changes that'll help uh, even if we can get back to work while to try to still keep uh, transmission down that's an active conversation that we're having, um, you know, across the uh, not only the government but across businesses and across the healthcare system. And again, I'll, I'll reiterate uh, that it, a large part of our ability to determine whether or not we can go into some type of recovery has to do with how comprehensive and how reliable our testing situation is. We have to have a reliable way of identifying those people who uh, who become infected and then be able to do the appropriate tracing to make sure that we identify who might have come in contact with them and, uh, and um, as a potential uh, site for additional infection and, and transmission. And then we also have to make sure that we have the right types of, of um, configurations for our different, um, our different elements across uh, workspaces, work areas, uh, businesses, homes, public gathering areas that we can continue to maintain some type of protection for people as we start increasing the number of people that might be going out and doing and, and resuming some of their either business or um, personal activities. Um, then the other part of that is, is we have to be able to maintain some type of surge capacity so that recognizing that even as, as was mentioned, even if we bend or flatten the curve, it doesn't mean that the, the virus has gone away, it just means that we've managed to control it and manage the downstream impact of these viral infections. So in order to maintain a certain level of surge capacity, we have to look, again, at what our testing is telling us, and then as we anticipate where surges may occur or where we might see a, a, an uptick in the activity, we also have to make sure that we have a, a consistent and reliable supply chain for the PPE so we can continue to make sure that our healthcare workers are, are safe. Uh, but even as we're looking at this, um, I think that it's going to become a part of everybody's responsibility, whether you're in healthcare or public health or not. I think it's going to become a responsibility for everybody to participate in supporting testing, if not trying to do testing of your employees you know, yourself and, and making sure that the public health department has visibility of your results, but that you're also, you also have a, a mechanism in place that should you have an employee that becomes positive, that you have a way of making sure that they are isolating themselves and preventing the, the, the spread among other employees, but then also being able to help identify which other employees might be at risk for becoming positive and then becoming a part of that, that transmission chain. So uh, part of our ability to make a recommendation to the governor about whether or not we're ready to go into some kind of, of metered response for recovery has got to be predicated on a, a level of readiness that has to be demonstrated across the entire chain of, of how this, this virus can spread and whether it's in congregate living situations, whether it's in the hospital or whether it's in business places. There has to be a certain level of confidence that we all have a way of responding to this so that when the virus, and it's not an if, but when the virus manifests its presence again, that we're all empowered and equipped 
to isolate it, to identify it, isolate it, and contain it as quickly as possible. Uh, Admiral Bono, if I can pick up there, a number of questions have come in regarding uh, inconsistency of state-by-state -state testing, country-by-country -country testing. So I, think, so I think the overarching question here is, how can we compare and trust the data that we have from Washington compared to other states? And do you have some thoughts about how, how well we are testing and how that will guide us as we go forward compared to other states? Yeah, that you know that is a challenge, and and I think what what you're seeing here is again it's a variability in the behavior of this of this virus more than anything. We know that the test right now it only tells you if you're if you've got the virus right in that moment, but it doesn't necessarily tell you that you're not infected because we know that people can shed the virus even if they're not COVID positive. They may be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, and this is. This is a behavior of the virus that makes this extremely vexing. Uh, so I don't, don't know that it's a variability in the testing that's happening across the country. I think it's actually a variability in the viral behavior that we're, we're seeing. In order to do appropriate testing, it really means that you've got to have a program where you're, you're surveilling certain members of the community who are at higher risk for being exposed to the, the virus and at higher risk for, for being infected by the virus. And so um, I may be negative today, but if I've been exposed within the last few weeks to the coronavirus, a, an ideal surveillance system would be that, at the, you know, that I would probably need to be tested in another four or five days, another 10 days, or when I start demonstrating some type of symptomatology that we know is, is consistent with a coronaviral infection. So, you know, our ability to do that and our ability to do that across the country, again, is, is being challenged by the, the behavior of the virus and, and how we know and, and what we're learning about the virus and how infective it is, um, even when the carrier might not be somebody who's manifesting the symptoms. And then, of course, the supply chain for some of these these um, testing kits. And then the other part of that is, too, is that we've had such a wide range of testing kits that have, have come on the market and that the FDA has tried to keep up with in making those um, available for use, broader use across the country with emergency use authorization. And so some of those test kits have some of their own variability, and you see that in terms of the turnaround time or the types of reagents they use, or even in the variability of the swabs that are being used. So I, I would just offer that I think that the entire country and each of the states is trying to do the very best they can, but I think the variability you're probably seeing um, is in large part um, impacted by the way this virus is, is behaving and, and what we're learning about how infective it is and how it manifests itself in people who are infected by it. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bono, or Admiral Bono. Let me ask Admiral Bono this. I, uh, I don't know if you have a hard stop at the top of the hour. If we do, I want to, uh, we have a bunch more questions to get through, but Admiral Bono, do you have a hard stop at the top of the hour? Let me check my handlers real quick. I think, I think okay. I've actually got a little bit of latitude in my time, so we can probably, Maybe 10 after. we can go until 10 after. Great. Let me try to run through a couple more questions here, and we'll maybe try to do this a little bit lightning round-ish. Uh, this has been asked a number of times, are homemade masks effective for people to wear uh, as they leave their homes? Uh, Michael Jackson or Dr. Bono, or just like the one, Jeff, hold that back up, Jeff, if you would, nice prop. 
Our homemade masks, like the one Jeff have, are they safe and appropriate for us to wear as we leave our homes? I, I would, I'll say that the masks uh, serve a couple of different purposes, all in the positive. So uh, I think they're a great reminder to folks that we still may, need to maintain some kind of physical distancing. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily use them in terms of uh, a surgical setting, uh, and that is a very attractive mask that, that we've got demonstrated there for everybody to use. So I think there's probably going to be a fashion industry that'll start responding to the need for sewn masks. Uh, they are good for catching uh, what we know about the virus is it's more likely to be droplets rather than aerosolized. And so these masks will be very good in terms of, of containing uh, the droplets. Uh, but we'd want to be very careful that they're not a substitute for the community mitigation measures. And um, they probably are not the kind that we would necessarily use in the operating room or the surgical suite or in a, in a in a true environment where we have known uh, coronavirus infection. So, but they're great for the community, and they're a wonderful way of messaging to folks that uh, we've got community mitigation measures in place and that they still need to be maintained. Up today, good job on that. Uh, Admiral Bo, let's go back to you, I think, on this question. This has come up a couple times. State of New York seems to be going with a testing kit that has results in 15 minutes that employers can use their employees. Is that, A, is that true? And B, would that be a testing model that Washington State might be looking at? So, uh, you know, we've been paying attention to all the testing kits that, that are out there, and we want to make sure that we have a, a high degree of confidence in their results. We don't want to have a place where we've got so many false negatives or false positives, because that would really skew our response to that. So as we're getting greater fidelity and more confidence in some of the tests that are out there, when we're looking at a statewide testing strategy, I think what we want to do is avail ourselves of all the types of kits and tests that are available out there that have a high degree of reliability. Um, and at some point when the serology test comes available and it becomes uh, more refined, which is the test that um, looks at whether or not you have antibodies in your bloodstream, which would mean that you've been exposed to the coronavirus, when that becomes a reliable aspect um, or a tool, then we want to also incorporate that into our statewide plan for assessing um, you know, the prevalence, the actual prevalence and the exposure to the coronavirus here in, in Washington State. So I think what you can, as we're, we're looking at this, what you can expect is that we will bring as many of those, those tools and those kits that we can to bear so that we can help understand what's actually happen, happening here or what's actually happened in Washington State. This next question one is, is one that's, uh, I think, a little nuanced, and Adam Bono, maybe for you. It says, USP 797 rules for sterilized IV medications and compounding pharmacies are often at hospitals. Uh, are the rules and regulations being relaxed for them, and how important are compounding pharmacies and medications for serving those who have the COVID virus? So I'd probably need to understand if there's a, an impression there that compounding medication is somehow um, therapeutic in the treatment of coronavirus. Is, do I understand the question correctly? I, I want to make sure before I, I respond to that. So it looks like, uh, as I'm reading the question here, that maybe some of the rules regarding uh, face masks and glove use and PPE and e oh, okay. in compounding uh, pharmacies has changed or evolved? Okay. 
so I think that um, uh, I believe with compounding pharmacy and the use of, of personal protective equipment, I mean, I think the indications for the use there are, are fairly specific. And I don't know that I'm not aware and I'm not as familiar with what some of the with some of the process, infection control models are as they apply to compounding pharmacy. What I can say, though, about personal protective equipment and what we're trying to do in terms of conservation of PPE is that we have arranged to have uh, several uh, um, or the ability to decontaminate some of the used PPE. And most likely, most um, uh, we're, what we're mostly looking at are the use of N95, N95 masks. Uh, those those uh, tighter fitting masks and being able to decontaminate them and then be able to safely reuse them. So in that regard, from the infection control measure for coronavirus and the use of PPE, we are looking very closely at what type of uh, conservation mechanisms we have that give us a high level of protection if we decontaminate the PPE and then reuse it. Uh, not familiar with infection control uh, with regards to compound pharmacy, but I would say that those would probably need to remain intact and preserved, uh, you know, regardless of, of what's happening on the um, PPE for the use of coronavirus. Thank you, Admiral Bono. If I can get uh, Dr. Jackson and Jeff and Todd to hold a few minutes, I maybe give Admiral Bono a few minutes to wrap up, and we'll excuse and thank her, and then a couple more questions for the three of you if I can. But Admiral Bono, I know you want to talk a little bit about public-private partnerships, and you've certainly been leading the call for PPE to be uh, manufactured in this state as well. And I should also say before you wrap up, just thank you for your service. You, you've stood up and ran fast in this moment of time. You come with such great expertise uh, in serving our men and women in, uh, in uniform. So thank you, A, for your service, but B, if you'd like to give some closing comments, we'd really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and, and um, I'm just, like I said, I, from the very beginning, I've been impressed with coming here to Washington State and seeing the level of engagement from the leadership and the community and the hospital system and, and all the Washingtonians, and that's very gratifying. So, um, you know, that's one of those things that if, I, if uh, I had to do this all over again, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better setup for everybody to be so engaged. And, and hearing the conversation and hearing the types of questions that I'm hearing today, also reassure me and, and, and inform me uh, how, how much people are paying attention to this. What I would say is, is that, you know, we took a whole of America approach to responding to this pandemic for all the right reasons. You know, you started seeing that everybody was, was doing what they could from the Department of Health to the public health areas to the local health jurisdictions. This is happening across the country. And then you start seeing that, you know, businesses also become a part of the solution in terms of the stay home, stay healthy effort that we saw here in Washington State. And, you know, we've seen across the country that there were kind of di slightly different approaches and timelines that, that people took. But, you know, the important thing is, is that we took a, a you know, an all, a, a whole of government, a whole of community approach. And, 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 you know, then you started seeing the involvement of the military, Department of Defense, HHS, and FEMA. And so we're bringing all those assets to bear in order to address an ongoing pandemic. And we're still in the throes of that, even though Washington has started to showing, demonstrating some impact of those communi community mitigation measures. 
we still have to remember that we are still very much in a pandemic, and we can't let up at this point. And so while we're, we're also very interested and curious about what recovery might look like, I feel strongly as well that this has got to be a whole of America approach as well. In other words, we, we shouldn't necessarily depend just on public health and the healthcare system to do or support all of the, the testing and the surveillance. Because the ability of a, a business to be able to, to start up or to start being a part of the recovery has got to be predicated on their own a business's own awareness of how much of um, a risk their employees will be taking on in terms of the recovery going back to some type of, of, of process or um, some type of emergence back into the workplace. We have to be able to help our employees and all of our community members know what type of risk they'll be assuming knowing that we haven't definitively put this, this virus away and we won't be able to assure any kind of safety for, for the, our community members until we have a reliable vaccine. So I think that moving forward, not only is it public health and the healthcare system's uh, responsibility to optimize and be as responsive as possible, but I think there's a role here for private industry to also participate in this, either as partnership or on their own, to ensure the safety and well-being of their employees. You know, and I think that the other part of this, too, is that part of our collective uh, ability to to look at how well our system is working is to be able to not only ensure that we have the capacity and the capability to respond whenever we see an uptick or another surge or another ramp up of the, of the disease, it's how well we're, we're monitoring where those outbreaks are happening and then very quickly moving to isolate and contain and, and try to tamp down any additional spread as soon as we see that. And so, all of that is very much uh, interdependent. And while we're concentrating on congregate populations, uh, if we are looking at recovery and we start letting people return to the workspace, uh, we have to make sure that, that we can do the same thing in those situations, and that is identify very quickly when there might be a, a, a small outbreak and move very quickly to contain that and prevent further transmission. So I, I would just close with saying that, you know, we took an all-of-America approach to responding to the pandemic, and we're continue, continuing to see evidence of that daily uh, in those areas that are, that are having their uh, just very challenges at their level, uh, whether it's in New York or Louisiana or in Texas or in some of the, the places in the upper Midwest where this is now starting to take hold. And I would encourage people to start you know, looking at it through a broader aperture about what might they be able to do to contribute, whether it's in uh, doing the manufacture of PPE, as we've heard here, which I think is an important part, but then it's also what, what are some of the opportunities that businesses and private industry might be able to contribute in terms of helping us help them protect their employees uh, to the best of our ability. So this this conversation that you've allowed me to participate in is so important, and I would love to see additional uh, conversation and thought in this because um, this is not just a health issue. It is a very broad issue, and it, it 
touches all of us in one way or the other. So thank you for this opportunity. I think the conversations and the and the people you bring together uh, are so important to making sure that we're developing the right types of thoughts and that we're all collectively able to contribute to what would make an impact uh, to our, our communities and our state and our country's ability to get back on our feet. Thank you very much. Admiral Bono, I want to thank you for your leadership and as they would say, fair winds and following seas. Be safe out there. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you guys soon. All right, Dr. Jackson, a, a couple of questions here before we run out of time. Uh, this has come up a number of times. Is there a correlation between the tuberculosis vaccination and the COVID resistance? Uh, I've, I've heard that idea expressed, but I haven't seen any data in support of that yet, so I can't speak intelligently to that. Okay. Uh, Jeff, a number of people have asked, uh, you offered, uh, have people email you if they're interested in partnering with you. Uh, your email has been asked for for a couple of times. So if you'd like to give that out here, great. If you'd rather send it to yeah, us, fine. have us push it out, great as well. Yeah, so my name, it's easy. It's Jeff Koss, K-A-A-S, at me.com. Um, I don't read email throughout the day, so I might read it at night. And uh, I'll give you a cell number if it's an urgent need. I don't care if people have it. It's 425-238-2775. Uh, I recommend you text me if you have something urgent and email if you want a slow response. Jeff, another question here that's come up from another manufacturer was, how difficult did you find it to retool and how long did it take you to retool to jump from doing furniture to PPE? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, this is, it comes back to our belief system. So our belief system is based on Toyota production system thinking, also known as lean, also known as Kaizen. So. Uh, and we look at anything that hinders flow of work, the flow of value creation as evil, that uh, causes waste. So um, we didn't retool anything. We just uh, turned the ship. So if you think of uh, on the 18th, we had a conversation. On the 19th, we had design released in, into the, the ether. Production actually started in a factory in Holland, a friend of mine who uh, we, we produced their product called Design on Stock here in America. So they built stuff all night on the 19th. So the Monday of the 20th, I had already got training videos from my friends in Holland. So um, when the organ, so if you think about it, uh, our, our place as a kitchen, we, we went from baking bread to baking cookies. And since we don't believe in having a bunch of bread sitting around rotting, we didn't have to really do a lot. So it sounds like we retooled and it really was, that's not the case. We had the bigger challenge, which is some of our airplane customers didn't know that they were gonna slow down uh, or they didn't have the ability to change the contract requirements on the slide down. So we had these contract requirements that please keep delivering stuff while we're trying to ramp up production. So that took a little bit of a uh, difficult conversation with current customers to let them know that uh, we can see the news and they probably won't need the production that they're asking for. That was a tougher dance. This has really been a great conversation dialogue. There's another 40 questions to literally get to that we've ran out of time to. I want to, uh, Jeff and Dr. Jackson, each give you maybe just two or two minutes or so uh, real quickly, just to summarize up anything you didn't get a chance to share today, anything that you really want to make sure that you drive home that point. And Jeff, let, let's start with you. You've done some really uh, great work here on, on quick notice. Uh, you've really put the lean principles uh, in place here to drive to an outcome of producing much needed PPE. Any kind of wrap up comments from you? 
Uh, yeah, I think a couple things. Number one, um, the only reason that we were able to run quickly is by uh, having a set of beliefs and living by those. So um, I have a Christian worldview uh, in the state of Washington. That kind of makes me a freak, uh, which I'm okay with. But loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor is a, a command. And so uh, people can look at us and say you're smart, and I would just say no, I'm a dumb sheep. So um, having a, 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 an idea of what are your values and then living by them, this has been a really great testament to seeing what loving our neighbor has done. So it put a bunch of people in my life that I had no idea were able to uh, turn on a dime and help me. So say number one is have a worldview and live by it. And uh, uh, the second is really those relationships are, have been the key. So uh, none of this would happen without a competitor trusting us enough to be able to keep his factories alive in Texas and California and another place. So, um, yeah, so those two things, know your worldview, live by it. And number two, uh, build those relationships. You never know when it's going to be a rainy day. Thank you, Jeff, very much. Uh, Dr. Jackson. Uh, also, as a Christian, I would say amen to everything Jeff just said. I think the for, for business leaders, just to be aware of that this virus is going to be around for a long time, that we can kind of project, you know, when or may or may not have uh, recent peaks or, or later peaks, but it, it's going to be here. And so just having in mind that uh, business is going to look different, uh, social life is going to look different uh, for quite a long time to come. So just being ready for that, having that expectation. Great. Outstanding program today. I think we had a robust amount of questions here. I want to thank all of our participants. Also recognize Kaiser Permanente of Washington for help bringing this seminar forward for us. There is a recorded audio link. So if there's something that Jeff or Dr. Bono or Dr. Jackson said that you really wanted to get your hands on, that will be available shortly after this program. Next week's webinar will be discussing the employment law and virtual workforce uh, opportunities and issues and challenges that have come out of this uh, as employers respond to their workforce. Uh, needs and desires. A great reminder to stay a touch and abreast of all of the different tools and resources available to you is the COVID landing page at awb.org. Nearly 4,000 Washingtonians a day are going to that as a one-stop portal to get the latest on information from how do you access PPP or EIDL to if you want to be part of the PPE initiative going forward. Lots of acronyms. Acronyms have not stopped uh, uh, in the virus and the challenges here. So Adam Bono, Dr. Jackson, Jeff and Todd, thank you for being with us today. It's been a fascinating webinar. We'll see you back here next Monday at 10 o'clock. We're adjourned. Be safe. Thanks for listening. Our next Employer Resources webinar is April 20th. To register for this or any of our upcoming webinars, go to awb.org and click on Events.